we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4 today. And as I mentioned last week, this is a turning point for Paul and for this particular epistle as he writes to the Ephesians and uh, the surrounding churches. We've been focusing in on the first three chapters, which primarily develop the theological core uh, of the what, what Paul has got on his mind and what he's expressing in this letter. And we've uh, mentioned this over and over again. You're all familiar with it. And the, the theme behind that is God chose us and called us before the foundation of the world in Christ to be his children. And in that calling us to be his children, uh, he had a purpose for us. And his purpose was that we would so live our lives that we would bring glory to God through Jesus and the church. And so that's the theme that we've been looking at through the lesson so far. But now Paul moves into another area which we call the paranetic material, which means nothing other than the practical material. But it's practical material of a certain kind that ties back to the theme that he has been developing. Now, there are a lot of other practical things he could have said in the Ephesians, but what he's doing is he's tying this message, this practical application, back to that theme that he's been developing. So the question that he's asked is, well, okay, Paul, since we have been called to so live our lives that we bring glory to God through Jesus, um, how do we do that? What does that mean? And you'll remember he'd already said that he has given us his spirit to empower us to so live our lives that we bring glory to God. Now in chapter 4, he's going to pick up on that particular theme and explain it. 4, 5, and 6 are three chapters that work through the practical, let me say ethical and moral application to the theology that we've been looking at. And so today we're going to look at that wonderful passage, Ephesians chapter 4, from verse 1 down through to verse 16. And you get a hint of what's coming by the very opening phrase that he says, I therefore. In other words, because of what I have said prior to this, therefore, this is what I intend or it will instruct you that you need to do. Okay, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord. And it's interesting that uh, he emphasizes that at this particular point. But the point behind that is that uh, in relation to Jesus, he wants them to understand that he is a slave. The word prisoner there refers to the servant. He is a slave of Jesus and he's in prison and uh, he's in Rome as he writes this letter. I mentioned to you in a couple of times, I just want to go back to it, that uh, movie that I saw, which starts out with Paul in Rome, in prison, and Luke visiting with him, and that sort of gives you the background behind what, why Paul is concerned for these churches. There's, a, there's a, a sense of emergency in Paul's life at this point, that he wants to instruct his churches as to how they should live their lives to bring glory to God. So I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, that shouldn't be difficult for us to figure out what he's saying, 
because he's told us several times what our calling is, that God called us in Christ for what purpose? To so live our lives that we bring glory to God. And so he says, therefore, because of that, I'm begging you. The word I beg you uh, is an interesting word. Uh, it has a, a quite a wide history, and I'm going to simplify it first and then get a little more complicated, shall I? The word in Greek is parakaleo, parakaleo. Now, para means alongside, and kaleo is to call. So Paul is calling upon these Christians to come alongside him in this business of living our lives to bring glory to God. So you can see there's a personal sense involved here when he uses this word, parakaleo, I'm urging you, I'm encouraging you, I'm begging you to come alongside to join me in this business of living our lives that we bring glory to God in Christ Jesus. So it's an interesting way to begin it. I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, he, chapter 2, he, he mentions a number of attitudes that are so important for Christians to remember uh, in the business of what he's going to develop here. <clears throat> I beg you to lead a life which you've been called with all lowliness and meekness, with patience, forbearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit <clears throat> in the bond of peace. Now, I want to back into this verse and start with what he closed off with, uh, that we might live our lives, that we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You can see why he adds these other words here, uh, lowliness, meekness, patience, forbearing one another in love, uh, and then ends up, that's me. Would you believe it's my son who just got back from time? Sorry. All right. I hate to turn him off because <laughs> I want to tell him, hey, you get over to my house quick, you know, but he can wait. Where was I before I was so rudely interrupted? Okay. So we're being encouraged to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, peaceful attitude. Now, the unity of the Spirit, is, it's very important for us to understand what he's talking about here. And so to do that, we need to drop back to 1 Corinthians and pick up with verse, uh, chapter 12 and look at several verses there because it helps us understand uh, the power of what Paul is saying. Now, the problem in Corinth, as you will remember, is that they were struggling uh, over spiritual giftedness. We're going to talk a little later about giftedness, but they were squabbling about the spiritual giftedness that they enjoyed because of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. All right? Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were heathen, you were led astray to dumb idols. However, you may have been moved. Let me just park it there. 
if you go back and look at the pagan world, there were all kinds of religious organizations and gods that you could follow, and it was no big deal. You chose the one that uh, you favored, the one that appealed to you more, okay? And you worshiped that god. And if that didn't work, well, you picked another one and worshiped that god, you see? Uh, it's somewhat like Hinduism today, because Hinduism has one ultimate sort of being, but they have all of these other gods that provide certain needs, and you choose the one that you want and hope it works for you. So this is somewhat of the background to what Paul is addressing here in Corinth and in Ephesus, because the people that are in the church in Corinth and in Ephesus came from that background, where you could choose whichever God you wanted to, and so maintaining a unity wasn't a matter of concern to them, because you just moved over to another God. But in Christianity, it doesn't work like that. You don't have that choice. And so therefore, if we are going to worship the one God and the one Lord, there are some boundaries to behavior that are involved in that. That's what he's talking about, and he says that you maintain the unity. Now, back to 1 Corinthians. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Cursed be Jesus. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, what he means by that, if it hadn't been for the work of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't know that Jesus was the Son of God and that he was Lord, you see. And so that's so important, but that's part of the revelation that we know. It, for, for most of us, it might have been, well, there's another baby being born. Isn't that nice? But because of the work of the Holy Spirit... It's not quite the same. It's different. And then you have the instruction and the teaching of the Holy Spirit. And so you don't, we really don't acknowledge the fact that Jesus is the ultimate Lord without the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's simple. Okay? But if you come to understand that this word Lord that we look at here um, implies also the sense of God, that Jesus is God. So you see how important the Holy Spirit is to our instructions. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I like that little expression there, especially in a word, in a congregation or in a world um, which is being driven by selfishness. Uh, well, look, I've got this gift. I'm better than you. I'm more important than you because I've got this gift. And Paul is saying, and it's not, you don't get these gifts for self-aggrandizement. I haven't a clue how you spell that. It just sounds so good, though. And I know if I typed it in there, spell check would come back and tell me they don't know how to spell it. But, you know, we don't have these gifts to make us feel more important than anyone else. And Paul says here, Holy Spirit gave them to us for what? For the common good, for sharing our giftedness with others. All right, I have that little expression underlined here in mind. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. 
What is wisdom? Oh, come on. You, you folk are wise, aren't you? What is Is there a difference between knowledge and wisdom? Yes. Can you have knowledge without wisdom? Yes. Can you have wisdom without knowledge? No. You see? So knowledge, or let's say wisdom, is the practical application of the knowledge that we have. And so in this particular case here, Paul is saying the Holy Spirit has been given to work in our lives to help us understand the knowledge that we have and to apply it in our lives. Do you think that's happening in your life? That the Holy Spirit is working in you daily to help you understand and apply what we're learning? I mean, we have a preacher that preaches just fabulous sermons to us on Sunday morning, does a great job, and we all say, wow, isn't that great? And what do we say after we come out? Where are we going for lunch? Do you say that? We do. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important time of our day. But uh, what we need to be doing is, you know, sort of talking, well, what, how does that apply in my life? And even asking God to help me understand how to go ahead and take that lesson and apply it in our lives. And he said, look, I gave you the Holy Spirit to help you in these matters. And that's what he's saying here, is that wisdom. Okay? And to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, that's quite a list of stuff, isn't it? Uh, That would be equally true of these churches that Paul is writing to in Asia, Ephesus, Colossae, and the others. That same Holy Spirit is doing the same thing in their lives. And you can see when you've got a whole lot of people with all this kind of giftedness, uh, if they're not careful, what you're going to end up with? A mess. Okay? And so there is obviously something we have to learn as to how we apply our giftedness uh, in the life of the body of Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here, because this church in Corinth didn't know how to do that. Because they were splitting and they were fussing. Uh, you know, when I think about that, if you look at the Corinthian church, it'll be hard guess for you to find a church that had more deep problems than that church had. I mean, all the way through, there's just one problem after another. And Paul even says to them, I wish I could come over there and straighten you up, but I can't. But do you know what he calls them all the way through? Brethren. Brethren, back in, and most of you will remember, uh, back in 1950, 1960, uh, Churches of Christ were facing a real problem over how do we take care of orphans. And there were some churches starting orphan homes, and other churches that said, no, you don't start an orphan home, that's the job of the church, and you're trying to do God's work. And God. And so we had a real tough debate at that time over cooperation, working together in churches, 
and even the Holy Spirit and the book of Revelation. And people were withdrawing from one another because of this. It was a mess back there in the 1960s. And one of my dear friends, some of you will know him, Dr. J.D. Thomas, who was chairman of the Bible department at Abilene Christian for many, many years, just a wonderful scholar and a fine gentleman, wrote a book that became almost among churches of Christ, the bestseller. And the book was, We Be Brethren. And the point was, hey, don't you think it's time for us to start living like brothers and sisters in the church instead of fussing all the time? And Paul knew that. That's why he refers to them as brethren. All right. Look at verse 11. Now, all of these are inspired by one and the same spirit. It's not a different spirit for each gift who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So who decides uh, how we are going to be strengthened? The Holy Spirit does. You see? Um, I shouldn't record this because it might be taken the wrong way, what I'm going to say. I know you're not going to take it the wrong way. But when it comes to singing, Holy Spirit did a lousy job with me. Uh, he didn't work to where uh, I knew what those little tea leaves in the songbook are. I just know if you look at them, if it goes up or not, you've got to go up a bit or you've got to go down a bit. My problem is I don't know where to begin on that business, you see. So when it comes to the giftedness of singing, Holy Spirit said what? You don't need it. We've got somebody else who can do that. Okay? And so the Holy Spirit works in us differently, not like we demand or necessarily might request. He works in our lives with our giftedness to help us to grow in different ways to where we can do different things for the common good. And in this business of all of us being different, uh, he also is responsible for helping us maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, so notice the similarity to the situation that we have in Corinth and what we're going to be looking at as we move a little further into Ephesians. All right, now verse 12. I really like this particular passage in verse 12. For just as the one body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Or you might say, so it is with the church. For the church is the body of Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And he moves on with that analogy that he's making there. The point is that Paul is driving home the point here is when we were baptized, the Holy Spirit was involved in that baptism. Can you think of a passage of scripture that's from the gospel that says something like, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you will not have a part in the kingdom? John, remember you're talking to Nicodemus. And so, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, implying there that the Holy Spirit is involved 
in our new birth. And the word there, born again, is fascinating. Uh, it's anothen. Now, anothen is one of those words that has several applications to it. It can mean born again, but it also carries embedded in it born from above. You see, and Nicodemus didn't understand that. He said, oh, must I be born again? He said, no, Jesus said, no, no, you don't understand. That's not what we're talking about. See, this new birth is a new birth, but it comes from above. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is involved in that new birth. No one becomes a child of God without the working of the Holy Spirit in their life. I caught that on my microphone. Gesundheit. You sneezed there. And my microphone caught it. And so I'm just saying, Gesundheit, it's okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is, that's right. <laughs> oh, I don't know how that happened that I heard it because I came home this morning, got in the car, driving down, and June spoke to me and I said, Huh? I left my hearing aids at home. So I'm in trouble, okay? But I can hear enough to catch up sneezes. So we're all right. Now, let's come back to this business of being baptized and the Holy Spirit. There's a passage over there in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Uh, I think it's chapter 3, verse 6. It's on the right-hand side of the page. I'll get it for you just in case you want to have it. Uh, chapter 3, yes, verse oh, 6. Uh, he speaks here, of Our competence comes from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not in a written code... That's the Old Testament, but in the Spirit. For the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, there is no new life unless the Holy Spirit is involved in that. And so you can see again, when we're baptized, yeah, we're doing something, but who's doing the work? It is God who is doing the work through His Holy Spirit that we're born again into His family, a new birth, and we become His children. But Paul picked up on that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 25 following. You know, he says, well, when faith came, don't you remember we were justified by Christ? For all of us were baptized by that one spirit. There's no Jews, no Gentiles, no Greek, no slave, no free. No, we're all the same because of the work of the Holy Spirit that's involved in our lives. Okay, that, I just wanted you to see here how important this business is that we understand what's going on when he's talking about maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the unity that the Holy Spirit has been involved in that brings us into this one body. Now, I had uh, a young brother who uh, was 18 years younger than me. I was... In high school, the, what it was, standard 10, grade 12, one evening when my father came in and sat down on the bed next to me, and I knew, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And he was very uncomfortable, and he said, uh, you need to know. Now, remember, I've been the only child up to this point. You need to know that your mother is going to have a baby. Well, you tell a guy that is 17 years old, uh, only child up until this point, that your mother is going to have a baby. Guess what went through my mind? What have these two been doing? 
Don't they know that's not supposed to happen that way, you know? <laughs> well, it ended up, he was born uh, 18 years younger than I. But because we never grew up in the same home, uh, shortly after he was born, my parents took off to uh, Zimbabwe and then north into Kenya and then from there to Australia and then they came back eventually. By the time he came back or my family came back, he was already 11 years old and I was working as a missionary and so I never did get an opportunity to get to know him or to build a relationship with him. Um, and that was a problem because he was my brother. And if he's my brother, what should my attitude be towards him? To love him. He's my brother. Okay? Well, what am, where am I going with this story? Surely you know where I'm going. I don't know whether your mom and dad asked God if you could be baptized and allowed to be in the family. All right? You're in the family of God. Born into the family of God, you're my sister. Okay, um, I didn't have anything to do with the matter. Uh, I might have said to God, what on earth are you doing? And he just says, none of your business. Okay, Here's what your business is. What? Is you love one another. Can you see how important that attitude of loving one another comes into this business of maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we are brothers and sisters in Christ. It was God's will. It was God's doing. He called us in Christ. And now guess what? It's up to us to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now with that said, did I need to clarify anything uh, in what I've said for you up to this point? Leave the family issues out, all right? Uh, anything particular? Okay, yes. And it's more, I guess, a confession, but back in uh, your First Corinthians 12, verse 11, just as he wills, you're saying that he is the Holy Spirit, not Yes, the yes, the Holy Spirit. Okay. But let's put it to you this way, uh, I, it wouldn't hurt to read God into that either, because God and the Holy Spirit are one. Okay, so because then verse 18, and now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desires. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Normally, the rule of thumb in trying to determine how those pronouns work is to go back and see the antecedent to the last person that was being spoken of there, uh, is how we normally go about that. Okay, let's come on back now to look at this business with all lowliness. Now, lowliness, for you and me, well, you know, we feel we understand what lowliness means. And uh, it's not a problem for someone uh, to be lowly. My friend Tex Williams tells the story that he was so humble that the church gave him a button that says humble to wear. And then because he wore it every day to church, eventually they took it away because he said, you're not humble anymore. Okay? Uh, lowliness is something that is a blessing, but we have to be careful that uh, we use it correctly. Now, there's only one person here, two people here, who know what I was talking about, Tex Williams. Betty 
knew Tex Williams. He was uh, one of the leaders on campus at ACU back in another century, and he was one of the leaders in a, a musical organization that called themselves the Nauseating Nine. That, hmm? <laughs> and they were. And they were, that's right. So, uh, okay, you can see the background behind. I know that's not important to you, but it is important to me. He baptized me. So he's a very special person in my life. Now, coming back to this, lowliness. Lowliness was a term the Greeks despised. It was not something to admire. Okay, uh, It was... You know, just bad lowliness. It wasn't an ethical concept that the Greeks, in their way of thinking, thought was good. But Paul begins with that right up front. You remember we showed you the video of Ephesus and the big library of Celsus there. And in the front of the library, there were several statues that were erected. And it all, it amazes me because those statues have all got a name on them according to one of the uh, ethical values that the Greeks in Ephesus would have. And guess what is not on one of those statues? Lowliness. Not there. But arete is, arete is an interesting word because it, it talks about ethical merit, being the right kind of person, all right? So lowliness was not a thing that these folk would be too excited about. But Paul hits it right up front. If we are going to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, it's going to involve lowliness from each of us. Right? And meekness. What's meekness? There's a, there's a normal definition that we have. Uh, strength in... Hmm? It's, it carries a sense of strength, but uh, Jesus was meek, and that implies the sense of strength, you see. But it's an interesting word, the word that's translated uh, meekness here. It basically means gentleness. Okay? And so we are in relation to one another to be meek, and that doesn't mean you know no values or anything like that. It means gentle with how we speak to one another and how we treat one another, right? So uh, another important value that we could learn from there, with patience, uh, he, he sort of qualifies that in the next statement, forbearing one another in love. What is patience? It's putting up with me, you know, Putting up with one another, uh, recognizing that we're all human and we have our faults, but because we love one another, guess what? We are going to be patient with one another. I have a little joke that I tell on that. June won't mind if I tell her, because I pick on her a lot of times. I never have to ask June, do you love me? I don't know uh, how many times if I have asked her, do you love me? Why? Hmm? She shows it. Okay, I know she loves me. Because if she didn't love me, you tell me why on earth she would want to live with me for 64 years. Anybody who wants to live with me for 64 years, guess what? 
they better be meek and gentle and lowly and, and love me. All right. So it's not necessary sometimes because we just have these good relationships that are special. That's what Paul is talking about. So notice all of these things that he mentions here that are so essential to our maintaining the unity that the Spirit has been involved in in the bond of peace. Now, verse 4, he sort of changes direction there. And there's been a time when some in the church have argued that these things, there is one body, one spirit, just as you are called in one hope, which belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of us all, that these are the primary values of Christianity. They're obviously very important to Christianity, but to call them the very primary values, that's stretching it a little further. So what is Paul doing when he's now talking about maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? What are you talking about? Well, okay, let me tell you. There is only one body and one Spirit. There is not a body, a church, for the Greeks. There is not a church for the Jews. There is not a church for the Africans and the Asians. We are all one body. And so you can see that that's so important. But notice there is one body and one spirit. Because if there are more than one body, what have we got? More than one spirit. So there's only one Holy Spirit. And if there's only one Holy Spirit, how many bodies could there be? So he's explaining the rationale behind this business of our being one body. Because there's only one spirit. That's the only way it could happen. See, And he moves on then. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Okay, What kind of call are we talking about here? Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. We were all called by God to be his children in Christ Jesus. That's what he's already established up front there, you see. God had already decided in heaven that there was only going to be one call that was going to be in Christ Jesus. So there's only one call that relates to our being in Christ Jesus. So if there's only one call, he didn't call some to be members of this body and some to be members of this body. He called us all to be children in the one body of Christ. So he's just driving home that point. There's just one body, and we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because there's just one Holy Spirit and one call. Okay? You know, I think we sometimes stretch that just a little and take texts out of context. And periodically... You know, I watch the religious news uh, on Sunday um, to listen to some of these other preachers. And I'll tell you, some of them can really flat preach. But, you know, I hear one guy say, well, I was called by God to be the preacher of this congregation. Uh, I, I don't think that's what the scripture is talking about here. We're talking about our call. We're called to be God's children in Christ Jesus. 
See? So we have to be careful about this business of being called, taking it out of context. So when he's talking about the, being called by God into this one body. Uh, all right. One sp- verse 5. There's one Lord. What's that mean? Who is the Lord? Jesus. There is only one Jesus. And who is he? He's our Lord. See? And so there's just one Lord, one Jesus. And one faith. What faith is that? Hmm? That's exactly the answer. How did you get that? Did you read that there? No. Okay. (laughs) Yes, it's the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Go back to Jesus on the the Mount, the Transfiguration. He takes Peter and James and John up onto the mountain. And there he is transfigured with Moses and Elijah. And they decide they want to build sort of booths for them there so they can keep him there a little longer. And the voice comes out from heaven and said, No, this is my beloved son. Now that's fascinating. Not Moses, not Elijah. This Jesus is my beloved son. So what is God saying there? Moses is not your Lord. Elijah is not your Lord. They were valuable leaders, but this, Jesus, is my beloved son, then the clincher. Listen to him. I love that little expression at the translation. Listen to Jesus. Don't listen to Moses, because what were the Jews saying? Well, Moses said, and Jesus comes back and said, why didn't you listen to him in the first place? But nevertheless, they would come back, well, Moses said, well, don't you remember the prophet Elijah, how he taught us? And God says they were important, but it's this one, Jesus, who is my beloved son. You listen to him. And so this point of one faith is the faith in Jesus. There's not a faith in Moses. There is not a faith in Muhammad. There is not a faith in Joseph Smith. There is one faith. And what is that one faith? The faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus. It's the faith that focuses on Jesus. Now, we'll get to an interesting point down here a little further where Paul will extrapolate on that just a little. Um, The point is we don't all have the same maturity of that faith, do we? Now, we know that our faith is in Jesus, but very often we're struggling with issues that come into our lives and sort of sidetrack us a little. Okay? They divert our attention and we begin to trust in other things. And of course, you know, we're living in a, a world that you can't, uh, it just frustrates me no end. Uh, I put the television on and try to find something that I want to watch. I've got that thing in my hand and I just go up and down. And most of the time, guess what I'm seeing? Adverts. One advert after another advert after another advert. And, and if you want to be special, you need to buy this card. If you want to get better, you need to put, use these pills or rub this stuff on you. Have, have you seen that late one where they say, you got this special stuff, if you just rub it on your eyes or on your neck or something, it all disappears in four minutes. <laughs> wow, you know. That might be encouraging me to trust it, you know. But guess what? 
we've been called every day by our culture to put our trust in other things, not in Jesus. There's one faith, but we struggle with that as we grow and mature. Now, that's an important point for us to remember if I ever get down to the bottom. Oh, we should. Okay. Uh, one faith, one baptism. Uh, what's he talking about there? Well, the Jews baptized, and John the Baptist baptized, and Jesus baptized. But there's only one baptism. Which is that one? It's the one that Jesus taught. Now, what's the difference between John the Baptist's baptism for the remission of sins and Jesus' baptism for the remission of sins? Both of them, in their setting, were legitimate. But John the Baptist's baptism, after Jesus died on the cross, is no longer legitimate. Why? John the Baptist's baptism was tied into the animal sacrifice of the Jewish system. And it was based upon the animal sacrifices that if you repented, you could have your sins forgiven. And John preaches now this baptism of repentance to show that you have repented for the remission of sins, but it's based upon the old covenant. And when Jesus died on the cross, guess what? That old covenant has been annulled, you see? And so now... Jesus' baptism ties us into the death of Jesus, the sacrifice there, once and for all sacrifice. So there's just one baptism. But you could see how this would be a problem for, uh, might be a, a Christian that's been a Christian for some time, and say, well, well, I was baptized by John the Baptist. Are you telling me that that's no good? Well, what, do you, what would you say about that? I'm, I'm sure most of you have struggled with this issue possibly in your earlier life when you were learning. Perhaps you didn't, weren't raised in the church. Okay? You were raised in some other uh, faith. And all of a sudden you decide that you need to be baptized. But your parents weren't baptized. And then you say, well, I don't know whether I should be because then I'm turning against my parents. You know, uh, What's going to happen to my parents if I believe that baptism... Uh, in Christ is what's important. What's the answer to that? We don't have to worry about those problems. That's God's problem, and I know he'll handle it. He will handle that appropriately, you see. But for you and me, there is one baptism, and that's the baptism into Christ in which we put on Christ. That's what Paul is driving home at this particular. There's just one baptism, and if there's only one baptism, guess how many bodies there are? One body. And there's one God and one Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. Park that now. We move on to another block of material, although it starts in a paragraph. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's not unattached to the matter of baptism and one body. The fact that we have been called through our faith and been baptized into Christ, the one body, is a matter of grace. We didn't deserve it. But it's by God's grace. So you see, lying behind this whole thing here again is Paul's emphasis on grace. But by grace, 
But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, what he's doing there is he's playing on a point, verse 8 and 9, uh, especially verse 8 can be a bit of a problem because he's quoting there from an Old Testament view that you find in Psalms and elsewhere. Therefore, it is said when he is... No, sorry. According to the measure of Christ's gift. That's where I wanted to stop. Um, if you look at any mosaics or inscriptions going back to the ancient days of Egypt or of Babylon, when a king went into a country, uh, he would take slaves back with him to serve him. So the people that he'd conquered became his slaves. Have we been conquered by Jesus? What have we become? His slaves. You see, we now belong to him. He's our Lord. We're his slaves. But another part of that also is when a king went into a foreign country and conquered the other people, he gave gifts to his soldiers, to his generals, to his army. They would take the, the profits of their victory and share it among everyone. And so a fascinating little thought has been brought into this passage here by the fact that because of Jesus' death on the cross, we have become his slaves. But guess what? He's also given us gifts. He has provided the church with gifts. Okay? Do we have any people in this congregation with giftedness? I think so, man. I, I just get carried away into heaven every Sunday when uh, John Jordan leads the singing or one of the other guys leads the singing. You know, I, I can understand John. I can see him. He's got no hair. But there's the other guy that gets up there that's tall and he sings with his mouth wide open. What's his name? Uh, okay, right. And when they get up there and, and others, just do, I just get all excited. We've got folks that can lead a congregation that size to where it just gets us all excited. We've got giftedness flowing out of our ears in this congregation all over the place. I was impressed on Sunday and the previous Sunday when we honored our young people that are graduating from high school in our congregation and going off somewhere. And I just looked at that lot and I thought, wow, guess what this congregation is putting out into the world. Some wonderful people. We have great teachers working with our young people, with our children. They have, didn't we have a, a party or something on Sunday night for our teachers? And how many people were listed as having been responsible for teaching our children in this congregation? Several hundred have through the last year been involved in teaching. That's giftedness, folk. And God has blessed us with that giftedness. So Paul is coming back to that. All right. Verse 9, a difficult but not difficult passage. In saying <clears throat> he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is he who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. That's not complicated. He's saying the one who descended to the lower parts, that's this earth, has also ascended up there. And when he came down here, what did he do down here? He died on a cross and he conquered Satan and he conquered sin and he's now gone back to God and what is he giving to his church? 
He who descended, notice, and his gifts, verse 11. And his gifts were that some should be apostles. Wow, could you think about that? Isn't it wonderful that we are taught by people that actually were with Jesus and heard Jesus talking? I was mentioning this in another context just recently. We were talking about the Lord's Prayer. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to hear Jesus pray and learn something from how he prayed? Well, these folk, you know, the apostles. So he's given us apostles. Uh, We know who the apostles are, don't we? Those who have been chosen by God through Jesus Christ and sent out. And some were prophets. Did, did, Did the church, not the Old Testament Israel, did the church have prophets? Remember one guy, Philip, had three daughters. And what does scripture say about them? They were prophets. They prophesied. What does a prophet do? Okay, yes. Prophets see something in the future. That's part of the story. But what else do prophets do? The prophet is a teacher. Okay? But it's an inspired teacher. A prophet is one who teaches by inspiration and the empowerment that God gives them to teach. The, word, the Hebrew word and the word prophetes, or the Hebrew word navi, just speaks someone, is someone who speaks for God. A prophet is someone who speaks for God. Because God has inspired them to speak. I'm not a prophet. I speak for God. But I'm not a prophet. Why? I'm not inspired by the Holy Spirit in what I say. It might be better uh, if I were. But I'm not. Okay? So there were prophets in the early church. And there were evangelists. What is an evangelist? A messenger. A messenger, one who tells the gospel. Euangelizo, euangelio is the gospel. Euangelizo is one who preaches the gospel. Uh, we have several uh, evangelists in the congregation here. Some have retired. Others are still very active in it. Uh, this Sunday, I understand Wes was down in Waco uh, preaching down there. Everybody knows that the people in Waco really do need to hear the gospel. You know? and well, he was down there evangelizing, preaching, you see. So they're preachers. So ev- prophets, they teach. Prophets teach. Evangelists teach. But then we have another little expression here. Um, and some were pastors and teachers. Now, I want you to notice an interesting little thing there. Before... The word, uh, here we have, he gave gifts that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip. Now, in in Greek, there is uh, a fascinating uh, little way of expressing things um, that we call articular or anarthrous. I know that excites you, but let me tell you about that. Uh, If you have a noun which just classifies or explains something, and you put the definite article, the, in front of it, so you've got the preacher, what are we doing then? Identifying 
the preacher. So the definite article in Greek, more so than in English, the definite article in Greek identifies the person. Right? The noun without the definite article, which we call anarthrous, it doesn't have the, tick, the article. The anarthrous noun doesn't identify. It gives you quality. It explains who this is. And so when we've got pastors and teachers, the construction there is not talking about pastors who are elders and other teachers. What Paul is saying here is that the pastors that we have are teaching pastors. I know you've run into this before from studying Titus and and, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. What are one of the qualities that we want our bishops or our elders to have? Apt to teach. All right. What does apt to teach mean? Hmm? Sorry? Does it mean that uh, the person could do it if... if yes, that, that's part of the story. All right? It carries the sense of they're capable of doing it, but you can't get them to quit doing it. You see? That's what it's saying. A bishop or an elder is such a person that says, I've got to teach. And so they are teaching pastors. What does the word pastor normally mean we use we don't t- use the term pastors pastors in our church we use what word shepherds we've got elders bishops and shepherds the word shepherd is the pastor right and so we've got pastors who take care of us through their teaching ministry so they are teachers but i want you to see here that it doesn't only just mean they're capable of doing that it just means you can't stop them from doing it And so, notice what God has given us in the church. He's given us apostles. He's given us prophets. He's given us evangelists. And he's given us elders and bishops and shepherds who teach us. So we've got a fourfold group of people there who are teachers. Can we have any excuse for not learning when we've got that giftedness in our congregation, you see? And that's what Paul is talking about. Now, why did he give us apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers? Read the next verse, 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so you see our teachers that he's been listening here are given to us to equip us for the work of ministry. It's getting time I've got to quit. Uh, I possibly will pick up with that next week because it is so important to build on it a little bit there. But the point that is behind here is he's given us these teachers so that we may mature into one body when every member of the body is functioning properly. Well, you know, take your body, my body. When one of the members of my body is not functioning properly, guess what? I'm hurt. Uh... Don't have my hearing aids in, ears are not working properly, guess what? I have difficulty following what some of you are saying. So we'll work a little more on that.